My name is Emily Kreider, and um, I have been a member of this congregation, a covenant partner for some time, married to John. We have three kids, Owen, Nora, and Elizabeth. You know you're a little bit tired when you forget their names all of a sudden. I've been serving grad students and faculty within a varsity Christian fellowship the last seven and a half years. And starting December 1st, I will be your pastor to Family Ministries. So. Thank you, thank you. I am so um, thrilled about that opportunity. Um, and if you don't like something about this sermon, you have to wait until December 1st to send me a note about it. I'm not on the payroll yet. Advent. Today we begin Advent, season that calls us to wait with anticipation the second coming of Christ. So we remember and celebrate that he came, Emmanuel, God with us centuries ago. I love Advent, Advent as you just heard me say. We uh, love the liturgical season around our family, but I often get ahead of myself in my heart um, with Christmas decorations and Christmas hymns. I was begging to sing O Holy Night since we are using that hymn to help inform our series, and I know it's Christmas tide and all the liturgic, liturgical among us are mad at me, but I do all of this with anticipation in my heart. Amen? <laughs> but folks, the series is A Weary World, rejoices. And in my own vulnerability, I find myself deeply resonating with the title of this sermon. Even as the team gathered thoughts around what we would call this and faithfully prepared, I found myself connecting with the tone of our Advent series. A weary world rejoices. Internally, I'm gripped by the reality with which we live. Just a few weeks ago, I supported a friend as she lost her husband to a deeply tragic disease. Suffice it to say, I'm among you who weep and mourn. There is plenty reason. It would take an entire sermon to preach through the difficulties of this weary world over the last just two years. The ways in which sickness, death, mental health, natural disasters, the local martial fires have devastated just this community alone. Then we would have to move on to cover the worlds of the wor world, the famine, darkness, conflict, and sickness that abound. So I did a Google search in preparation like a total masochist to find out what were the worst parts of 2022. <laughs> a weary world? Well, what was the worst part? And I suffice it to say, we'd be here a while. If I went through the list, I don't recommend it. Um, you all are deeply attuned to the ways in which we could be weary. So at this point, you're probably wondering, is she really gonna talk about how weary we are the whole time? Because this really just took the buzz right out of Advent. But if we haven't taken the time to lament, to grieve the things of this world that God did not create, but sin and fallenness have allowed, then we would have no reason to find hope in that which is eternal. Let me say that again. If we haven't taken the time to lament, to grieve the things of this world that God did not intend or create, but sin and fallenness has allowed, then we would find no reason to find hope in that which is eternal. Thank you. Feel free to chime in. 
I've been telling everyone recently about a book that I am just totally obsessed with called Prayers in the Night. It's written by Tish Harrison Warren, an Anglican priest. And she teaches us through the words of the Compline Prayer. The Compline Prayer, if you don't know, in the Anglican tradition is part of the daily offices that you pray and it's at night before bed. It's on the screen here and it goes like this. Keep watch, dear Lord, with those who work or watch or weep this night and give your angels charge over those who sleep. Tend the sick, Lord Christ, give rest to the weary, bless the dying, soothe the suffering, pity the afflicted, shield the joyous, and all for your love's sake, amen. What a beautiful prayer to help us capture what we mean by paying attention to the ways in which the world is weary and yet giving it to the Lord. So as we talk about our communal grief and lament, the ways in which we're weary, Tish Harrison Warren goes on to say this that's on also on the screen. We need communal Christian practices that teach us how to voice both the fullness of pain and the fullness of joy without diminishing either one a hair's breadth. That should say breadth with a D. Whatever. For those of you who are grammatically correct without diminishing either one. So this is why we turn to liturgy like Advent, a Christian practice that allows for us to call out, own, and appreciate the tensions with which we live this side of heaven. We can hold both the pain and the joy at the same time when we know what our hope is in. But we no longer need to linger in our hopelessness and darkness so long that we forget about what and who gives us hope. Warren goes on to say, we especially dismiss hope when we revel too long in our darkness in the name of gritty authenticity. For the melancholy among us, this is a difficult word, but an important one for our holding hope in this tension, this side of heaven. Okay, so here's the fun part of the sermon. The Advent tension that we hold is that God has established the very beginning of his kingdom through the incarnation of Christ, yet we wait for for final glory in Christ's second coming. The good news, Jesus' work is not done yet. Anybody? The good news is Jesus' work is not done yet. There is reason to hope. He's coming again. But when? Let's read from Matthew 24, verse 36. Starting in verse 36. You can follow along on the screen or in your Bibles. But about that day or hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. As it was in the days of Noah, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. For in the days before the flood, people were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage, up to the day Noah entered the ark. And they knew nothing about what would happen until the flood came and took them all away. That is how it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. Two men will be in the field. One will be taken and the other left. Two women will be grinding with a hand mill. One will be taken and the other left. Therefore, keep watch. Because you do not know on what day your Lord will come. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known at what time of night the thief was coming, he would have kept watch and would not have let his house be broken into. So you also must be ready, 
because the Son of Man will come at an hour when you do not expect him. Here Jesus is addressing his disciples as they question the ways in which he's been dancing around his messianic promise, his identity. They pulled him aside for some insider information and they really wanna know if the destruction of the temple that he has been talking about will make him king after all, put him finally on the throne as the king of Israel. Their messianic hopes were misaligned. As many of you know, they in the nation of Israel were looking for a warrior king to solve their communally marginalized position in the world. They wanted someone to fight for them. They weren't looking for someone to die for them. When they ask Jesus these questions, and they're not, they're not doing what we do, or they're not reading this with the same lens that we might read it or hearing it, they're, they're not asking in light of a second coming because that wasn't clear to them yet. The first was still fuzzy. They were still considering who the Messiah was and is. They didn't have the theology that Paul gives us in the epistles that promises the second coming. So if this is not for the second coming, then what's the point of their question in the discourse? Jesus is looking at the disciples and he's saying to them, stay the course, be faithful, and be hopeful while you're doing it. You do not know the things of God. And frankly, he didn't even know. He says in this passage, Jesus didn't even know when the time would come for him to come again. But he calls them to trust in the goodness of God to make good on his word. Now, all throughout the the prophets, Isaiah, Malachi, and many of the Old Testament prophets, we have a witness to what we can expect from our Messiah. But we have to wait. And the last time I checked, we don't particularly like waiting. I know my toddlers um, have a certain idea of what waiting is, and it's even less than mine, which is saying something. Here in the U.S., and even just in our humanity, we have this idol and illusion of control and security that we like to hold on to, grasping strongly, white-knuckling, We think that our sense of security or control will tend to our souls, but it actually keeps us from hope and the one who holds all things. But the waiting is not a a boring cue, a line with which we stand in for centuries just twiddling our thumbs. We're meant to wait actively. So our passage from Isaiah that Carol read for us this morning recalls this in anticipating and participating in the works of justice while we wait, calling ourselves out as people of hope, lowering the anxiety in every room that we enter because our hope gives us peace. But are we this kind of waiting people? Have we captured enough hope to be present to a weary world? But what does it mean to do justice and be hopeful when there is so much to be weary about? There's a woman that I think of, and I've thought about her a lot lately in scripture, and I taught our grad students this in October, so if there's any of you grad students in here that have heard this already, you can tune me out. Okay, 
comes from Luke 8, and it's the woman who has been hemorrhaging for 12 years, maybe upwards. And she's hemorrhaging in a female way, which makes her unclean to her society. She's likely been isolated, alone. She probably hasn't been touched for that length of time. She sought every physician she can find. No answers are there for her and how her body could be healed. And not just her body and her physical pain, but her emotional and social pain and not being touched for 12 years, not receiving a hug, not being invited into the community of God or even just the community, not having any place to belong, but in wild isolation, she must have been wildly weary. And yet here she finds herself, Jesus is going actually to heal Jairus's daughter. She's about 12 years old, oddly enough. And not oddly enough, Seek the irony. Here we go, people. Okay. So he's going to heal this daughter of a, of a pharisaical leader, of a leader in the church. And he's smushed in this crowd. Jesus is, is huddled into the, the middle of this crowd. They're pressing in on him, scripture says, and, and he feels the power go out of him. And he says to his disciples, who touched me? And they look at him and they say, are you out of your mind? They didn't, but that's what I imagine they're thinking. And they said, what do you mean? There are people everywhere. Some, anybody could have touched you. And he said, no, the power went out of me. Who touched me? And this woman acknowledges her crossed boundary of clean legalistic law. And she says, I touched the hem of his robe. And he looks down at her and he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Now in Malachi chapter four, it says that healing will come through the Messiah in his wings. Stay with me. The Hebrew translation into Greek is, the Hebrew is kanaf there for the hem. The translation in Greek is tzitzit or tzitziot, which are the strings or the hem of the garment that a Jewish man would have worn. She was so faithful and deeply acquainted with her God that she could see as he being the Messiah, if I just touch the wings, if I just touch the edge of the robe, I'll be healed and be proclaiming that this is the Messiah. And this is what she does. In her weariness, isolation, issues with sickness and likely mental health, she was so deeply connected to the person of God, likely through the Holy Spirit, she was told this is the Messiah, touches his hem and she's healed. Do you wanna know how to be faithful? The right next step while being intertwined with Christ, being so deeply connected. Here's a more modern example for you. I love this poem by Emily Dickinson, and not just because she's got a great name, though that helps. It's up on the screen here. Hope is the thing with feathers that perches in the soul and sings the tune without the words and never stops at all. And sweetness in the gale is heard and sore must be the storm that could abash the little bird that kept so many warm. I've heard it in the chillest land and on the strangest sea, yet never in extremity it asked a crumb of me. 
Emily Dickinson has been a curious person for me for quite some time. I can't entirely tell you why, but when I was in seminary, I took myself on a little field trip out to Western Massachusetts. And I visited her home, the home where she wrote most, if not all, of her poetry. Emily suffered from a great deal of mental health disease. She had a hard time with social anxiety and often locked herself up in her house. Her story helps me appreciate this poem even more because it reminds me that even the weariest of us has reason to hope. I love this poem because as a Christian, I can take the personified hope that she creates in this picture of a stubborn bird and think about the stubbornness of the Holy Spirit and the companionship of Christ when I let them be my hope. The poem describes our soul as hope's home. Hope, written here, doesn't ask for anything from the soul. It weathers significant storms and winds that could blow it away. Even more, in the worst storms of all, it sings sweetly. As that Christmas hymn, O Holy Night, reminds us, the thrill of hope, a weary world rejoices. It's the Advent thrill of hope that allows us to wait, even in the weariness, with a bit of joy and promise in what is to come. If we trust and believe that the incarnation was as good as it can get, with Christ's life, ministry, death, and resurrection, we can imagine with hope as Christ comes again. He will make all things right, finally, fully, complete. The Old Testament calls this shalom. So, be faithful in your daily work. Do justice, love mercy. I don't know what this looks like in each one of your nuanced daily lives and I'm not gonna attempt to try to apply it to each one of you, but what I can do is charge you to seek the Holy Spirit in prayer asking for which ways you as an individual and in your families can wait with hope and anticipation, allowing this prayer to help you grow in faith and witness. So church, my charge to you is this. Hold hope deeply in your soul like a bird who refuses to give up and make the companionship of Christ your heart's most contented gift as you wait with hope this Advent season. Let me pray. Oh Lord, we trust that you know the ways in which we're weary and yet we name them and call them out with lament and grief. And even as we do so, we trust that you are making all things new. The story is not yet over. And while we wait in this middle of the kingdom, here but not already complete, we ask for peace and patience and hope like a stubborn bird that refuses to fly away. And where we need to ask for more, we pray that you would help us to ask you. Where we need help, we pray that you would help us to call on our friends and family and colleagues and coworkers to to bolster us up and to support us in times of, of weakness or sadness. God, we delight in you and in your spirit. So come Holy Spirit, And pour yourself into our hearts this season of waiting. 
that we might go out as faithful witnesses of hope and peace to a weary world. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen.